Hey, everybody, I'm Chris Kaufman, and welcome to the Ideas Having Sex podcast. Each show, I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, or politics. Today, my guest is philosopher Mike Humer. Mike is a returning guest to the show and the author of several books, including Paradox Lost, Approaching Infinity, The Problem of Political Authority, Knowledge, Reality, and Value, which we discussed on Episode 8, and the book we are discussing today, Justice Before the Law. This is my conversation with Mike Humer. I'm joined today by philosopher Mike Humer out of Boulder, Colorado, is the author of many books, but the book we're discussing today is Justice Before the Law. Mike, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. This is Mike's second appearance on Ideas Having Sex. You appeared before to discuss your intro philosophy textbook, Knowledge, Reality, and Value, and people really liked that. So I thought, why not have him back? So your central, the central idea of this book is encapsulated in the title. Can you elaborate on what exactly your thesis is for Justice Before the Law? Yeah, I mean, you know, the title is some, something of a pun, but I mean, my meaning of it is we should place justice ahead of the law. And so my idea is, well, you know, in the in the American legal system, there are many kind of systematic injustices. And by that, I mean, it's not just like an accidental thing, but like a feature of the system that's unjust. Uh, like an example would be, um, you know, almost all cases are resolved by plea bargaining and not by a trial, which is not necessarily unjust. But the way that you get all these people to plea bargain is by threatening them with harsher punishments if they ask for a trial. Of course, the right to a trial is guaranteed by the Constitution. So it would seem like uh, you would think that you can't make somebody give up a constitutional right by just threatening to hurt them if they exercise that right. You would think that that's a violation of the right. But anyway, so that's like a really widespread feature of our system, right? So, you know, like that's the first thing that I noticed. And um, also, you know, part of why we have this is that quite a lot of people involved in the legal system think that their first loyalty or their only loyalty is to the law and not to justice. So it's actually it's pretty common to hear a lawyer or a judge or, you know, somebody involved in the legal system say, no, the job of a court is not to do justice. This is not like a, you know, fringe view. This is like the dominant orthodox view. If you're in a court, you know, if you're on a jury, if you're a lawyer, if you're a judge, you are not supposed to do justice. You're supposed to just follow the law, whatever the law may be. OK, and I think that that's just a completely indefensible view. Right. Like that's just an irrational view. And the people who have this view frequently have it with like near total confidence. Right. They act like this is 100 percent certain proven truth, but there's just like no rational case for it. I, I think people like that probably hold that view with the idea that in sufficiently extreme cases, it wouldn't apply, that there there are they would believe that there are limits to what the law can compel you to do. But under pretty high levels of obvious injustice, you're still required to follow the law rather than the dictates of justice. Is that your reading? Yeah, I mean, I assume, <laughs> I assume the people who have this view would not say that if the law requires you to literally kill everyone on earth, that you should still do it. I assume they wouldn't say that. 
but they're pretty extreme, right? Like, you know, you can send somebody to prison for the rest of their life for something that you don't even believe is wrong at all. Like they think that's fine, (laughs) not fine. That's obligatory if that's what the law says, right? So, I mean, it's pretty extreme, right? So you go through uh, very much in a in the style of a philosopher. You first claim that the American you, you're focusing on the American system that the American legal system violates people's rights in serious and systematic ways, and you tabulate a lot of injustices. But you take a detour to justify the existence of rights or why you think people have rights. Can you say something about that and what your what your moral case is for the existence of rights and what yeah. rights are in your formulation? Yeah, I mean, yeah, so I should say something about what what rights are. I mean, they're agent-centered enforceable constraints on harming or mistreating people in certain ways. What did I mean by agent-centered constraints? So you're morally responsible for ensuring that you yourself do not violate people's rights with your actions. It's not that you you have an obligation to minimize the total number of rights violations that occur. Thus, for example, if you could violate one person's rights to prevent two rights violations, you generally should not do that, right? So, like, if you take if you take the um, if you take rights, if you treat them as a goal, then in the sort of consequentialist fashion, then you just minimize the number of rights violations. So, if you can violate one right to stop two rights violations, then you do it. Uh, but that's generally not the way it's understood, right? It's not It's not by people who really believe in rights and, you know, people who have a deontological ethics, right? So that's the agent-centered part. Like, so if I can murder an innocent person, that will prevent someone from murdering two innocent people. I can't do it. Yeah. You as the person doing the murdering, you're the agent in that conception of agent-centered. So it's, right, yeah, yeah. It's, it's centered on you and you are not uh, allowed to violate rights regardless of the consequences for broader rights protections. Right, yeah. So, yeah, so, you know, the agent is the person who's performing the action. So agent-centered means it's like you have to um, you have to look at your own, the agent's own violation of rights. Um, you're not just looking at rights violations in general. Okay, now that's not to say that you don't want to stop other people's rights violations. Of course, you should stop other people's rights violations if you can do so without violating rights yourself, which is kind of why we have a legal system. Okay, the other thing is uh, when I say so they're enforceable constraints, what I mean by that is it's morally appropriate to use coercion to stop people uh, or to remedy people's rights violations, to stop, to prevent or remedy rights violations, right? So there might be things that you shouldn't do, but it's still not appropriate to use coercion to stop people from doing them. Like you shouldn't spread malicious rumors about people, Okay, but if somebody is spreading malicious rumors about them, you still can't use violence against them. All right, so that means that not having malicious rumors spread is not a right in in the sense that I'm understanding it. You're differentiating rights between other kinds of moral obligations and claims. Right, yeah. So, you know, like rights are um, sufficiently important that it makes sense that we use force to enforce them. Or at least that, that it's acceptable to use force. Right, yeah. It's not it's not the case that it's, you know, always obligatory to use force to remedy or or stop a rights violation in in your framing here. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, like I'm not I wouldn't recommend that you go out and like, you know, fight crime yourself like Batman. because You you could stop some rights violations, but you might get hurt. And okay, And and then the other part of what you asked was, oh, why do we believe in rights? And I mean, my basic answer to that is um, people have ethical intuitions about certain kinds of cases. 
and talk about rights kind of systematizes them. All right, so this is an, an example from the ethics literature. Um, a crime has recently been committed in your town, which caused a lot of public outrage. And, you know, you're the sheriff of the town. You think that unless somebody is punished for this crime, there will be riots during which a greater amount of harm will be caused, unjustly too, by the way, <laughs> uh, than the harm that would be suffered by the person who was punished for the crime. <laughs> Unfortunately, you have no idea who committed the crime and you have no way of solving the crime because you're an incompetent investigator, whatever. <laughs> anyway, you can't solve the crime. But what you could do is you could frame an innocent person and that would forestall the riots. So should you do that? Right. And I'm stipulating that more rights violations will occur if you don't do it. So framing the innocent person is a rights violation. But if you don't, then there will be riots and the rioters will violate some rights and, and that'll be worse. So should you frame the innocent person? Right? And when I, you know, when I ask this to people, almost everyone says no, right? Like that's wrong. Okay, so that is, that's the sort of intuition that supports the idea of people having rights as, you know, agent-centered and forcible constraints. And you use this approach in this book, but also in all of your work or all of most of your work, that this intuition approach. Can you say something broadly about that and what the most common objections you hear to an intuitionist approach? I mean, it's, it jumps out as a plausible approach to some people, and some people have a lot of objections right away. I mean, so like, here's a general epistemological view. It makes sense to assume that things are the way they appear, unless you have reason for doubting that. That's my, you know, completely general approach to epistemology, right? Um, and uh, if you don't like that, you know, if you don't agree, you know, what exactly else is going to be your belief system, right? So like, how are you going to, uh, how are you going to form any beliefs at all if you don't assume that things are the way they seem to you, you know, even when you have no reason for doubting that, right? Yeah, what would be the other default uh, approach to how you regard how things appear to you? Uh, I mean, the other approach might be we, you know, we just start from skepticism, like the default is skepticism. You know, you doubt everything until you have positive evidence, right? Okay, but like, if that's your view, then if that's your starting position, that's also your ending position. Because you can't you really get doubting. out of that without having, without taking some future appearances seriously. Yeah, right. Like, okay, like if I have to prove everything, if I, if I have to prove the reliability of every belief forming method before I can use it, what method am, am I going to use to prove the reliability of a belief forming method? I can't use any, right? Because I have to first prove its reliability before I can use it. So, and I don't have an infinite series. I don't have an infinite regress of belief forming methods. So it's like, it's just obvious, immediate global skepticism. Um, you know, the other thing you might think is, oh, um, I don't know, maybe people form beliefs by things other than the way things seem to them. I, I would just sort of like suggest, like, try to think through what it might be. Because my claim is, uh, no, in fact, every normal belief forming method is assuming that things are the way they seem until you have a reason for doubting it. You know, leaving aside, obviously, blatantly irrational methods, like believing whatever you want to believe, right? Like the, the times when somebody forms a belief, you form, a, you believe something either because it seems true to you or for some, something like, I wanted it to be true, I wanted to, I wanted to believe it. I thought good people would believe it or something like that. Okay. So like all of the alternatives that all the all of the other ways that people form beliefs, I think are just blatantly irrational. And like nobody claims that they're rational. So 
when you think about it, I, I don't think that there's an alternative. So going back to rights, using this approach, what do you have to say to, I guess, consequentialist approaches that either that either might you know discount these intuitions or might claim that there are sufficiently weighty competing intuitions about the morality of you know weighing more happiness as more important than less happiness and that maybe you yeah. should just uh, override those those uh, individual case level intuitions in favor of something like yeah. a broader form of consequentialism yeah why not be a consequentialist I mean, basically, I think that consequentialists have an unstable position. You know, they're they're unstably poised between either nihilism or egoism on the one hand, and you know, intuitionism on the other hand. Isn't egoism just a form of consequentialism? Yes. Well, I I was thinking of utilitarian. <laughs> I was yeah. I was okay. Okay. You were thinking about the yeah utilitarian consequentialism. I was when I said it. Yeah, so the question is, well, um, you know, do we accept ethical intuitions, you know, at least prima facie, right? Do we accept ethical intuitions in the absence of grounds for doubting them? Or is our default attitude that we reject them? Okay, well, if you accept them generally, then it's going to be really hard to defend utilitarianism because they're just like so many very strong, very widespread intuitions that it conflicts with. Then on the other hand, if you say, no, 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 we don't accept intuitions, then then there's no reason for believing utilitarianism. Like there's no reason for believing that it's, um, morally right to help other people rather than just stepping on everyone to serve your own interests, like the egoist view, or rather than there just being no reason to do anything as in the nihilist view, right? Like, why why do you think that um, you should promote pleasure rather than pain? That's an ethical intuition or an evaluative intuition, at least, right? Um, pleasure is better than pain. Or, you know, why do you think that other people's pleasure matters at all? Like, why do you have any reason to promote other people's welfare? And, you know, and those are those are just things that intuitively seem correct, you know, to people with a normal conscience. So I don't I don't think that the utilitarians have no recourse. Like, I think this the right strategy for utilitarian is something that's difficult to carry out and that utilitarians generally don't try to do. Right. But what they have to do is um, explain how, like, those intuitions are different from the deontologist intuitions so like, you know, the intuition that um, pleasure is good, pain is bad, and, you know, you should care about other people's welfare. Like they have to explain why, okay, those are different. Like there are not grounds for doubting them, but then the deontological intuitions, there are grounds for doubting all of them. And then you have to give specific arguments for like why they're all doubtful. And that's a really long project. Uh, it's not in principle impossible, but I don't think the utilitarians have in fact done that, right? I, d- I don't want to stay on the the foundational moral philosophy and justification of rights detour too much longer, but what are what are some of the main ways that utilitarians have tried to justify why u- utilitarian intuitions about, you know, the moral importance of other people, etc., why those are different from the kinds of intuitions you're appealing to or why they're shouldn't be considered moral intuitions in the first place. I don't know of an argument for them not being intuitions. Um, I think people just tend to ignore them, right? Uh, they just sort of ignore the fact that those are intuitions. But, you know, why, why would they be different? I mean, or stronger. There's some like, yeah, there's some of this, like, uh, you know, empirical research that, that tries to show that how people get their deontological intuitions is maybe different. You know, oh, okay. I haven't gotten into this, like, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe different parts of the brain are activated or whatever. Like there's more emotional input. The lame in your parts of the brain. Intuitions. 
Uh, the, but the other thing is like, you can sort of, you try to find inconsistencies or not, maybe not exactly inconsistencies, but tensions, like something weird about um, these different deontological intuitions where they don't exactly fit together. Um, in some cases, it looks, it looks like there's a pretty good, like there's a pretty good argument that your intuitions are being driven by factors that when you think about them, don't seem like they should be relevant. Well-known examples, like Peter Singer says, that our intuitions about your obligations to other people are very strongly impacted by how close they are to you. So like you feel like if you see somebody right in front of you who's in need, then you feel like you're obligated to help them. But if there's somebody who's like 2,000 miles away and they're in need, then you don't feel like you're obligated to help them. And like it you know, doesn't seem wrong to ignore them. Okay, but then when you think about it, you're like, could their geographical distance be relevant? That that's not relevant, right? Okay, so anyway, and and that is also an intuition that it's not morally relevant, right? So this is a species of the approach where you try to say, well, we have intuitions that are in conflict with each other, and you know, like there's a subset of our ethical intuitions, the utilitarian intuitions, which are all internally coherent; they all fit with each other. And then when you adopt traditional deontological views, you get tensions among different intuitions. Okay, that's a good answer, a good explanation of a view you don't agree with. Let's move on to the, some of the actual meat of the book. You review a lot of different problems with the U- U.S. justice system. Um, and one of them, just a very straightforward one, is the ex- just the existence of unjust laws. So you, you kind of start by, in part two of the book, reviewing major features of the U.S. justice system that are not actually just as kind of setting the stage. And just the existence of unjust laws in the first place, you kind of use immigration law and drug laws as like flagship examples for that. So I was curious why you chose those. And if you think they are politically hot button issues to choose as examples for this. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, I'm fine uh, with it because it, because it, you know, strokes my biases, but yeah. I mean, one reason why I chose them is that I've worked on those topics before. Like I've written about them in academic papers um, I wrote about immigration before it was like a popular hot button issue. I mean, people were always talking about it, but it like it soared in popularity in the discourse in the last few years. Um, but also the other reason is uh, if you were to try to list the most harmful laws and that, you know, if we consider you consider drug prohibition as a law and immigration, uh, almost prohibition, immigration restrictions as a law they're really good candidates for the most harmful laws that we have. And in the case of the drug laws, and I don't know how many it is now, it used to be half a million. I think maybe now we have 400,000 people in prison. And uh, if you accept that that's unjust, you know, having 400,000 people unjustly imprisoned at any given time, that's pretty bad, right? And those people's lives are ruined for the time that they're in prison. And there's all these other negative consequences that result from this, right? It strengthens organized crime. You know, it causes ancillary other crimes, so it causes more theft and murder and so on. Also costs a whole lot of money, right? Also maybe altering our justice system, like we're reducing protections on defendants um, and, you know, just like protections on citizens uh, in order to get more drug criminals, right? Because it's so hard to stop uh, the drug crimes. Uh, Investigating any crime that doesn't have an identifiable victim who wants to come forward and say, hey, a crime was committed means law enforcement has to find other ways to investigate crime, including maybe privacy violations and uh, surveillance and things like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. One of the reasons why it's hard to enforce the drug laws is that when there's a 
drug crime, the quote victim is the perpetrator, right? Or like the person who's taking the drugs, like they're the supposed victim. Well, they're mm-hmm. not going to come and testify against themselves and they're not going to complain to the police or whatever. So it's harder to enforce it. Um, but it's also hard to enforce it just because there's like so many tens of millions of people who don't see anything wrong with using drugs. And like a large percentage of the country have tried illegal drugs. And this is different from most crimes, right? Like most people have not attempted murder. (laughs) People have not committed rape or an armed robbery or whatever. Like most uh, crimes that have big sentences are things that a normal person would never do. But with the drug crimes, which now have large sentences because we can't stop them, but there's like, you know, normal people do them. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why it's hard. And then, you know, results of this include things like, okay, so now we're reducing civil liberties. Like now we have no knock raids. And, you know, now we have asset forfeiture where the government gets to just like steal your property. And then they don't have to, they don't have to prove in court against you that you committed any crime. They could just steal your property. Right. And then, you know, there's a preponderance of the evidence standard because they claim that they're not charging you with a crime. They're only charging your property with a crime. This this is the practice of if you are if you are caught in possession of property that I guess a law enforcement agent believes just the existence of that property is maybe evidence of a crime, then Uh, they can just um, seize it. They claim that your property was used in committing a crime. So like, you know, you're you're driving around and they claim that you were using your car to transport illegal drugs and then they take your car. Right. And then, OK, and then they, uh, you know, in many cases, they never convict you of actually transporting any illegal drugs um, because that requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And they don't have enough evidence for that. But then they claim they don't need proof beyond a reasonable doubt to keep the car. Right. So how is how is. Um that not like a pretty clear fourth amendment issue or i'm sure it is but has like what's the ridiculous su- excuse I mean, like, what's right? the, yeah what's the legal rationale i'm just surprised that that practice got off the ground and is so common yeah no the ridiculous rationalization is that uh the fourth amendment only protects people not cars <laughs> so, so and they're not charging you with a crime they're charging your car with being involved in a crime yeah, <laughs> it's, not, it's something like that. Um, and, but anyway, this is all just about, you know, drug laws are bad. <laughs> um, I mean, the main cost of the drug laws is really the like 400,000 or whatever number it is now, right? The hundreds of thousands of people who are unjustly imprisoned, living in prison is like the worst place to live. Right. Like, Terrible. Many place. of them are subject to abuse while they're in prison and so on. OK, so like that's why it's a candidate for being the most harmful law. Um, you know, largely because of just like the enormous amount of non-compliance. If people followed the law, it wouldn't be nearly as harmful, but they're not going to. Uh, and then the, the other example was um, immigration law. The reason why I say that's a good candidate for the most harmful law is, um, I mean, there are literally millions of people who are unable to migrate, who want to migrate and are unable to because of the law. And if they were able to do so, they would drastically improve their lives permanently. Right. Like, you know, moving from a poor country to America, that just like totally changes your life for the better drastically on uh, the amount, you, you know, the amount of harm caused by 
the immigration laws to gauge that. Imagine that somebody kidnapped you and took you to a third world country and then forced you to spend the rest of your life there. Would that person have harmed you? Immensely. Yes. <laughs> a lot, right? Okay, now imagine that that's happening to millions of people. And I can hear, I'm sure you're going to get into this, I can hear the objections in my head. Can you talk about the distinction between harming and failing to help? Because a lot of people are going to say, well, that's not harming them. You know, they have no right to come here or something like yeah. that. Am I harming you if I don't let you into my house? But you have some a thought experiment yeah. and I are, are going to take issue with that analogy. Yeah, and, and, and this is why, so like, you know, it's only if this actually is an unjust law, is it a good example, right? If, you know, if it causes harm, but it's just justly, or if it's not causing harm, it's just failing to cause benefit, but it's just, then it's not a good example for me. But anyway, so yeah, this, this is an example that's supposed to show why you consider immigration restrictions unjust. Um, so there's a person named Marvin who's uh, hungry, hence starving Marvin. Um, the starving Marvin wants to go to a marketplace where he could buy some food and assume that in the absence of outside interference, this would succeed. So, the, you know, the marketplace is there. There are people there who would be happy to trade food to him for something that he has. Uh, however, Sam shows up on the road while Marvin is walking to the marketplace and forcibly bars his way. So because, you know, Sam has some nephews and nieces whom um, he's afraid that Marvin, Marvin might bid up the price of food in the marketplace. And he doesn't want his nephews and nieces to have to pay more. So he forcibly blocks the way so Marvin can't get there. And Marvin has to return home hungry. And, you know, maybe he starves to death. Okay, so did Sam harm Marvin? Or yes. simply fail right. to help him? Yeah, yeah. He didn't that... just fail to help, right? Like if Sam just sits there and says, I'm not giving you any food. That's failing to help, <laughs> okay? But if, if he actively stops Marvin from getting food from people who would be willing to give him food, <laughs> then he's harming Marvin, right? And violating his rights and possibly even killing him, right? If Marvin starves to death because he couldn't get to the marketplace, then Sam killed him. Can you see the analogy? <laughs> so, um, you know, Sam in this example is like Uncle Sam and uh, the, the marketplace is like, well, you know, the US labor market, you know, there's like these millions of immigrants who would like to come here. And there are people here who want to trade with them. There are people here who would like to hire immigrant laborers and would give them money. And then they would use that money to satisfy their needs. And I'm not asking the government to do anything actively to help them. I'm just asking the government to leave them alone. Just and to leave other Americans alone too. the Americans yeah. who might otherwise right. want to hire them or trade with them or buy from them or rent a house or sell a house to them. Yeah, I mean, it's violating the rights of the American citizens as well who would like to trade with the, the migrants. Um, although it's less serious because, you know, they're in less need, right? Yes. And even in the example you give, I mean, I, you mentioned that the starving Marvin hypothetical is calculated to be extreme, but it doesn't have to be that extreme if it's if they're yeah. not literally starving to death, but you are just keeping them in very serious poverty or something similar. Yeah. You are doing that unjustly. It's very serious, yeah. Even if they're right. not starving, yeah, still wrong, right? I mean, you know, it could be a small, you could make it one that's a small rights violation, right? Like, you know, Marvin was going to go and trade there, and he was going to make, um, you know, fifty cents by selling something, <laughs> and, yeah. and and now because of Sam, he can't make the fifty cents. Okay, and well then, that's basically equivalent to stealing fifty cents from him. Right? It's a way of saying that immigration restrictions 
between wealthy countries are much less serious than immigration restrictions from of wealthy countries on very poor countries yeah. is a much more serious uh, violation of justice. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think they're all, you know, they're all rights violations. So, you know, like, think about this. Um, let's say that you want you're you've applied for a job. And um, so you were interviewed. And you know that there's one other candidate who's uh, your rival for that job. Okay, and that other candidate is going to their interview tomorrow. So you stop them on the street and like forcibly prevent them from getting to their interview so that they won't get hired so that you get the job. Is that wrong? That's wrong. Right? You can't do that. Okay. Now, um, I really yeah, wanted that job. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not as serious as the person starving to death, but stopping somebody from getting a job, that's definitely wrong. And so, okay. So that's like what we're doing to the people, you know, all the people from the wealthy countries who would want to migrate. We're doing something like that. You, you talk about these, these laws and they're, you know, the individual facts of these laws, drug laws and immigration laws are important, but they're also, as are a lot of the things meant to be illustrative, but you claim, you make the provocative claim at some point that all laws are presumptively unjust. What does that mean? And why does it not just mean that all laws are unjust? Right. Yeah. Yeah. sounds like an extreme view. Like what? How could that be? You know, so I'm not saying that most laws are unjust, uh, let alone all of them. But they're presumptively unjust, meaning um, it's unjust unless there's a good enough reason for it, right? So, and this is like, um, you know, like how uh, in the in the courtroom in criminal trials, um, the defendant is presumptively innocent, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. They're presumed innocent. That does not mean that all defendants are innocent. It doesn't mean that most defendants are innocent. As a matter of fact, they're almost all guilty. I mean, if you know the statistics, you know over ninety percent of them are guilty. Um, you know, if they make it to trial, um, mm -hmm. probably 95 or something like that. But even though, you know, most of them are guilty, they're still presumed innocent. What does that mean? Well, it means that if there's not good enough evidence, right? Like if there's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, then you treat them as being innocent. Usually there is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's why they usually get convicted, right? But if there wasn't, then they would be acquitted. Okay, so when I say laws are pre presumptively unjust, I mean like, well, there's got to be a good enough reason. Like there have to be good enough arguments for having this law. And if there aren't, then the law is unjust. Okay, now usually there are good enough reasons. Like we shouldn't have murder. You know, like there's a, there's a good reason for having laws against murder. <laughs> but on the other hand, sometimes there's not a good enough reason. So in, um, I claim in the case of the immigration restrictions, we just don't have very good reasons for having those laws. Right. Of course, there's a disagreement about that. So, I mean, the, the anti-immigration people think they're really good reasons. So you have to have a longer debate about that. You know, if you just decide, no, we're just going to prohibit migration from this country because, you know, we just don't like foreigners. Right. <laughs> and uh, like if that's the reason. By the way, I don't think that's an unrealistic example. I think that's totally realistic that a lot of people just don't like foreigners. No, it's probably a realistic example, but it's not an example that will be publicized by its proponents. Yeah, yeah. People won't say that that's their reason, but I think it's plausible that that's many people's reason. Anyway, so like if that's the reason, then it's unjust, right? Because, you know, you're, you're imposing a pretty large harm on people for a really lame reason. Why are laws presumptively unjust, but other non-law rules not presumptively unjust? I mean, why are the why are the rules of international soccer not presumptively unjust? Because a law that it, 
a law that doesn't have good enough reasons for it is a rights violation. And why is it a rights violation? Well, because um, laws involve typically, almost always, they involve some kind of punishment for the people who would violate the law. And that punishment is going to be imposed by force. It's not voluntary. Right. And people have a people have a right not to be, you know, intentionally coercively harmed for no good reason. Right. So, you know, think about like somebody just, you know, a cop just arrest you on the street for no particular reason. They just don't like your face and then they throw you in jail. OK, so that's a rights violation. <laughs> that's unjust. OK, uh, if there was a law that said um, if the cops don't like your face, we get to throw you in jail, <laughs> it would still be unjust. It would just be an unjust law. <laughs> right. Okay, so right, so the difference between the rules of soccer and the rules of the government is like, well, the soccer federation doesn't like put you in jail. Uh, they don't hire armed guards, right? Describing it more abstractly, uh, they don't employ coercion to um, to intentionally impose harmful punishments on you if you violate the rules. Right? So if the if the sanction for a rule violation is not obviously coercive or forceful, that changes the the moral calculus here. Presumably, you know, uh, presumably the rules of the soccer federation or rules I set in my own house are going to be enforced by me asking you to leave my house, which is something I have a right to do in the first place. Right. Yeah. So that kind of changes how you think about it. Yeah. So, so you know, like, the, yeah, the cops putting you in jail is a rights violation unless they have a good enough reason. But, um, you know, you kicking me out of your house is not a rights violation, even if you don't have a reason. If you just like don't feel like having me there anymore. <laughs> if I kick you out of my house because I don't like your face. I might be a jerk, but it's not a rights violation. Right, yeah. So you mentioned um, plea bargaining earlier. You make some provocative claims about the practice of plea bargaining. What is plea bargaining and what is what are your thoughts about the practice? You know, like I think, I think most Americans are maybe not aware of how much plea bargaining there is, right? It's a practice where you don't go to trial um, because the prosecutor convinces the defendant to plead guilty. And the way the prosecutor convinces the defendant is by saying, well, um, if you ask for a trial, you're going to get more charges against you. Uh, if you plead guilty, you will get lesser charges, a smaller number of charges, or you'll be charged with lesser offenses um, than if you ask for a trial. And so then the person goes, okay, I'm gonna plead guilty, right? Uh, because yeah, they don't want the more heavy charges, which they think there's a good chance of being convicted of. This is not very popular outside of the legal system. So uh, average ordinary people, I think, I think it's common for ordinary Americans to think, oh, this is a bad practice because it lets criminals get off easy. I think it is a bad practice, but not for that reason. I think that reason is just like completely out of touch with reality. It does not let criminals get off easy. <laughs> you know, um, it enables the state to convict more criminals and they're already being massively overpunished. Okay, but the practice is also unpopular among scholars. So like legal philosophers and legal scholars uh, tend to be stridently against plea bargaining. Like uh, there are you know, many articles that just point out the total irrationality of this practice uh, according to the usual values of the justice system. But it's very popular among judges and prosecutors. And uh. I think... This is partly because um, the scholars tend to think in terms of the abstract principles. Like, you know, we we say there's a presumption of innocence. We say you can't be coerced to give up your constitutional rights. This practice is clearly incompatible with that. So the scholars are not down with it. But then the judges and prosecutors are like, look, 
this is how we resolve 97% of our cases. If we didn't have plea bargaining, that means there would be 30 times as many trials. And so we have to get 30 times as many juries. And you know, Americans hate serving on juries. They're constantly like trying to get out of jury service. So like, how are we going to get all of these trials done? Right. If you didn't have any plea bargaining at all. Okay. My view is, well, I don't think that it's impermissible in all cases. Right. I think there should be limits on plea bargaining. Okay. So I think there should be a limit to how much higher your sentence could be if you ask for a trial rather than a plea bargain. So what we currently do is if you go to trial and you get convicted, you get a sentence that's around three times longer than the sentence that you get if you take a plea bargain. Okay. And I think that that's kind of insane. You call that the trial penalty? That's right. Yeah. And it's like, um, that's insane because like, there's no way in which you could say like, there's no way that that could be just, right? It can't be that you deserve a three times higher sentence because you asked for a trial. But I think it would be okay if it was something like 20% higher or maybe 25% higher. Like, you know, that's the practice in England. Is the thought there that you are more blameworthy if you know you're guilty and then you insist on a large and costly procedure anyway? Yeah, that's but part not of it. Three right? times more blameworthy? That's right. Yeah. Part of it is that it's worse. You're a worse criminal if you commit the crime and you refuse to admit it. And then you like put everybody through all this trouble and expense because you know you're an asshole and you're trying to get away with your crime. That's worse if you just commit the crime. It's not three times worse, but it might be 20% worse. Okay, but and the other thing is um, the problem with plea bargaining is uh, it's coercing people to give up a right and you can't coerce somebody to give up a right. But my but my claim is like if you threaten somebody like what counts as coercion might depend upon how bad the threat is. So if you threaten somebody with a 20 percent higher sentence, um, I think it can be argued that that's not really forcing them to give up the right to a trial. But if you threaten them with a three times higher sentence, it's plausible that that is forcing them, right? That that's more coercive. And it has to do, this This interacts with another criticism of the legal system you bring up, unjust punishment. Whether, whether you're coercing them morally is related to whether, are you threatening them with, you know, more punishment for insisting on a trial? Or are you magnanimously offering them less punishment for just saving everyone the trouble and giving it up. And those things could look identical, but it probably matters what the initial punishment is and whether it's even close to a just and proportionate punishment for the crime in general. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so part of the background is that American sentences are um, drastically disproportionate <laughs> in, in general, right? So um, they're much higher than sentences in Europe. Right, which is you know one one way that you might get the idea that they're they're um, too high, um, or you know if you just look at some cases, like you know I have some cases in the book of um, kind of crazy sentences. You the know, guy like who bounced person, the check. Yeah, the the guy who tried to pass a forged check for eighty eight dollars, then he got a life sentence. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa! Adjusted for inflation, though, wasn't that still a just punishment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Adjusted for inflation, it was something like under $200 or $300 or something like that. <laughs> um, so, and if you think about, okay, what's a proportionate punishment for that? So we try, basically tried to steal something equivalent to $300 today. 
uh, what's proportionate to that. I mean, many people think that you should get a punishment that's about as bad as the thing that you tried to do to somebody else, or maybe a little bit worse, okay? Not a hundred times worse, <laughs> okay? So what's about as bad as, like what jail sentence is about as bad as, you know, somebody stealing $300 from you? A couple days, a couple days in jail? <laughs> I would pay $300 to not stay a couple to not stay three days in jail. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it depends on the person, right? Yeah. Uh, so for poor people, and you know, like most defendants are poor people. So sure for them, maybe, you know, and then you might think, yeah, it's okay to give them a little bit more punishment, you know, punishment that's a little bit more harmful than the harm that they tried to impose, partly because of um, deterrence reasons. So like you need to make it so that the expected harm before they commit the crime. So the expected punishment is uh, outweighs the expected benefit. So that's why you can make the punishment a little bit more. But mm -hmm. okay, so month in jail, and that might be might be okay, but not the rest of your life, right? Okay. By the way, this was because of a repeat offender stat statute because he'd like committed two previous felonies or something, um, and so there's a bunch of laws like that. Okay, but anyway, so the background is we have huge sentences in the first place, and then the prosecutor says to the defendant, okay, I will give you a slightly less disproportionate, or well, I'll give you a less disproportionate sentence, you know, I'll give you a sentence that's still disproportionate, but it's only like, you know, five times greater than you deserve instead of um, 15 times greater than you deserve. So you got to take the deal, right? And now, you know, my suggestion of um, the trial penalty could be 20 or 25% higher rather than three times higher. Um, yeah, another another part of the rationale for this is the amount of punish. What is the just punishment for a crime is not a completely determinate amount. Like you might think there's a range of punishments that count as just punishments for a crime because it's kind of subjective. But you know, there's like there's some things that are definitely unjustly harsh and some things that are unjustly lenient. But then there's a range in between that's kind of okay. So I think that um, you know a punishment. And then one that's 20% higher, those could both be within the range. So they could both count as a possibly just punishment for a crime. But if one thing is three times more than the other, then they can't both count as just punishments. You also bring up the, the idea that you want to take into account like psychological realities of innocent people and think like, is the plea bargain benefit or the trial penalty so large that it would be enough to induce a normal innocent person to say, well, screw it. I'd rather take a certainty of five years in prison than like a 90% chance of, you know, or w whatever, whatever it is. Cause sometimes innocent people are going to find the deal attractive enough to take the plea bargain, even though they're innocent. And you want to make sure that the incentives aren't so out of whack as to induce innocent yeah. people to confess. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, this was actually said in one of the Supreme Court decisions that uh, upheld plea bargaining, you know, like the court said, you know, of course, we wouldn't want um, <laughs> we wouldn't want a system in which people were innocent people were induced to plead guilty. Right. So if that happens, then we will strike down the plea bargaining. <laughs> right. But uh, but that is happening. Right. Um, so, you know, if the um, if the punishment that you get for insisting on trial is going to be three times higher than the punishment that you get if you plead guilty. That means that you should plead guilty if there's at least a one-third chance, right? If there's, a, if there's a greater than one-third chance of your being convicted, okay? So if there's a 35% chance you'll be convicted, 65% chance you'd be acquitted at trial, you should plead guilty, okay? <laughs> According to like standard decision theory. Uh -huh. That's insane. 
we clearly should not have a system in which like people who would probably be acquitted at trial are pleading guilty, right? Like, you know, like, I don't know exactly what the standard should be, but that definitely shouldn't be happening, right? Yeah. Um, and you mentioned earlier the constitutional issue that you're being, you're being in some sense coerced through plea bargaining, through being threatened with a harsher sentence into giving up your right to a trial. So you have a constitutional right to a trial. You're being coerced out of it. You're also being coerced out of your constitutional right to not self-incriminate by being threatened for a larger sentence in order to give a confession. Yeah, I mean, you know, like the, the so the Supreme Court ruled on this. And like in some of these cases, the Supreme Court's um, reasoning is pathetic, right? Like, OK, so, you know, the Supreme Court is usually intelligent. And what they say about most cases is usually plausible and like, you know, consistent with common sense morality, okay? Except when the interests of the state are at stake. And then they say the stupidest, you know, rationalizations, like obvious rationalizations, right? So in this case, the interests of the state were at stake because of the time they made this ruling, you know, like, the, well, the majority of cases were disposed of by plea bargaining and the court knew that it would be really expensive for the government if they had to offer everyone a trial. Okay, so anyway, so their rationale is, oh, we're not forcing people to plead guilty. <laughs> um, you know, they they still have the option. They still have the option of going to trial. And, um, you know, the like they're being threatened with a harsher sentence, sure, but, you know, that doesn't prevent them from rationally deliberating, you know? So like, it's not like when you're under torture, okay? And, you know, you can't think straight. Like, no, you know, they're given a chance to calmly and rationally think about whether they want to take the plea bargain deal Therefore, it's voluntary. Yeah, it's an odd definition of voluntary. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, vo it's voluntary because it didn't like completely short circuit your reasoning abilities. So. If I if I hold you up in an alleyway and say like, now take a minute, I'm going to I'll stand here. I'll wait. You can have 10, 20, 30 minutes to think about it, your money or your life. Yeah, get, get, I'll wait as long as you need, but get back to me. Yeah, with you an can answer. have advice from a professional. Right? You can yeah. tell you what's in your interest. Right. Because that's part of what they said. Like, I want to make sure this is consensual consult with a lawyer who can professionally advise them. So it's totally voluntary. Um, you know, there's like one of the articles in the literature criticizing plea bargaining compares this to the notion of voluntariness that was used by medieval torturers. So in medieval courts, um, they accepted confessions that were induced by torture. Right. But the practice was, and okay, but you couldn't accept a coerced confession, but you could, you could get a confession from somebody who'd been tortured. Yeah. Square that so circle. They had to explain why the person who'd been tortured hadn't been coerced. Okay. And so the practice was you torture the person first until they confess. And then you can't use that confession. Then you go away, you come back a day later and ask them the question again without torturing them. And if they repeat the confession, you can use that one. If they don't repeat the confession, you torture them again. And <laughs> you just repeat the cycle. Okay, so... And eventually, you, you probably just, only have go, to do it a couple days. Yeah, you go and, you know, and they figure out what's going on. <laughs> so then, so you do it until you get a voluntary confession, which is voluntary because the person was able to rationally reflect because they weren't being tortured at the moment. They were able to rationally reflect on whether it was a good idea to to uh, to confess to this crime. I used the same technique. I just got engaged, and she finally said yes. So <laughs> yeah, okay, that's good. Now you don't have to torture her anymore. Exactly.
Where were we plea bargaining? Oh, can you talk about, there's a topic you bring up, which seems simple on its face and just to some people, but like wildly radical and uh, outrageous to many others. Uh, what is jury nullification? And what do you yeah, have against the rule of law? <laughs> yeah, uh, jury nullification is a practice in which a jury decides that they are going to acquit so they're going to they're just going to say that somebody's not guilty because they think it would be unjust to punish this person um irrespective of the factual evidence. So there could be evidence that proves that the person violated the law but they're going to say he's not guilty because uh, they think it would be unjust. And there are different reasons why you might think that so they might disagree with the law itself. Um so like uh frequently people get acquitted in drug trials where you know you suspect that it was jury nullification because the drug laws are very unpopular. So there are some jurors who will just not convict somebody of using illegal drugs. Okay. Uh, or it could be that you think the thing the defendant did was wrong, but you think that he's being, he's going to be overpunished, right? Like, um, uh, you know, some case where like, oh, somebody had um, child pornography on their computer and then, you know, they're going to go to prison for 20 years for that. And you're like, okay, that's wrong. You know, having child pornography on your computer is wrong, but is it 20 years worth wrong? To, to where you might think that the punishment is going to be a greater injustice than the initial yeah. crime going unpunished. Yeah. So, you know, there's stuff like that. Um, okay. So, you know, you, you vote to acquit, even though you think the guy did the thing. Um, you know, what's wrong with this? And so, so I think that's what you should do. Moreover, I think that's the point of having juries. The point, like if the jury is not going to do that, then there's no reason to have juries. Just like have everything done by the judge. Like, it's not just my opinion. I think this was the opinion of the founders of, of the US Constitution. And that's why they love jury trials, right? Um, jury nullification was well known at the time of the founding. So there are famous cases like this case where somebody was prosecuted for seditious libel because he had published articles criticizing the governor of New York. Right. And um, okay. And then, and you know, the guy totally admitted that he published the articles, obviously. <laughs> and his defense was that everything he said about the governor was true. Then the prosecutor said, yeah, but that's irrelevant. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's true or not. You know, it's still illegal to criticize the government. Didn't he say apparently... it's not just irrelevant, it's worse if it's true. That's right. Yeah. It's worse because, you know, making truthful criticisms will do more to um, undermine confidence in the government. This works. Okay. <laughs> the judge agreed with the prosecutor and instructed the jury that they should disregard the truth of the claims. <laughs> okay. And so the jury went back and they're like, you know, fuck this. <laughs> so they voted not guilty. Right. Okay. So then, you know, the and then the guy went free. Okay. And that, you know, that had some role in the American tradition of free speech. This was back when uh, New York was still a colony, British colony. Right. But that did, um, that did, you know, that had something to do with starting our tradition of free speech that, yeah, you can criticize the government. <laughs> uh, that was a, that was a well-known case. And that sort of thing is part of why we have jury trials. So, you know, like what I was saying um, earlier, like what else could be the reason? So the reason for having jury trials should be something that a jury could do that it makes sense um, that they would be better at that than a judge. And also, it makes sense that you would want someone to do that thing. What could it be? Okay, and you say, well, uh, I don't know. Uh, evaluating the factual evidence and applying the law as directed by the judge. <laughs> Why would the jury be better at that than the judge? That makes no sense. 
obviously the judge would be better at that. Okay, judges are familiar with, um, you know, they've seen many cases before. So they're going to be better at understanding the evidence. Also, by the way, they tend to be more educated and more intelligent. So they're going to be better at evaluating factual evidence and applying the laws directed by the judge. Like they will do that 100% of the time, right? They will understand the law better than the jury. Okay, what else could there be? <laughs> like, what could you possibly want like 12 randomly chosen people um, from the community to do that you would think that they would be better at that would be a good thing to do, right? And the only answer is, are supposed to hold the government to the values of the community. Antonin Scalia, before he died, like one, one of his um, cases, he made this comment that just as suffrage was supposed to ensure the people's control of the legislature, the institution of jury trial was supposed to ensure the sovereignty of the people in the judiciary. Okay, like the idea was, well, um, you know, it might be, so the judges are going to be, they're going to know the law and they're going to understand the factual evidence, but they might have incorrect values. And in particular, because they identify with the state, obviously, because they're part of the state. So if the state becomes tyrannical, you can't count on professional judges who were appointed by other, other members of the government. You can't count on them to stand against government tyranny. And that's why you would need 12 randomly chosen people from the population. And my understanding that is that Jury nullification is legal. It's just heavily discouraged and hushed up. Yeah. And I think it is actually illegal. And I don't know why this isn't a First Amendment's violation, but I think it is illegal to like hand out pamphlets on jury nullification in a court parking lot. Oh, yeah. Like they that. claim that it's jury tampering, right? Which is bogus. <laughs> if it's even if it's very general and has nothing to do with any specific case. That's right. Yeah. That's why I'm saying it's bogus. Right? Yeah. 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 So if they mention a specific case, then I would agree that it was jury tampering. Like if they said this defendant and then they suggested you should jury nullify about that, but they totally don't do that because they totally don't care about particular cases. Right. They're not trying to get some particular defendant acquitted. Right. They're trying to educate jurors in general about mm -hmm. what the duty of a jury is. So, um, yeah, so it is um, it is totally legal. It's legally legitimate. And this is not controversial. The fact that it, it's a legally valid thing to do is not controversial. What's controversial is like whether it's a good thing to do. Right. <laughs> like, you know, many judges think that it's a bad like it's an immoral thing to do that you shouldn't <laughs> you shouldn't do. And they sort of think like they think that you have some kind of duty, but they're not claiming that the law says that you have to apply the law. Nobody claims that because there just is no such law that says that. Well, it definitely um, diminishes the authority of the judges. Yeah, which judges hate, right? Uh, and, you know, maybe diminishes the authority of the legislature because the jury can decide that the legislature was wrong, right? At least in one case. Yeah, that's right. And I the, mean, prose um, the prosecutors and the arresting uh, officers as well. It's, you know, kind of nullifying yeah. what, they, what they've done as well. Yeah, so, I mean... The legislature tries to make a rule that applies to everyone for all cases. And the jury just says, well, in this particular case, we don't think this person should be punished or we do think the person should be punished, whatever. Right. So like, the, you know, the jury making this decision um, and they, they make this decision after they've already heard all of the facts of that particular case. And so I think that that's a much more reliable way of deciding whether an individual should be punished rather than just blindly applying a rule that was made by a group of people who didn't see this particular case, right? Because like sometimes there are cases with conditions that you wouldn't have anticipated. 
Like the legislature didn't think of a particular scenario that could play out. And so to decide what's just in that situation, you need somebody who's seen that particular case, right? So an example that I had, I mentioned in the book was, um, you know, there was a statute in Michigan about um, prohibiting distribution of child pornography, okay? And uh, there was a teenage girl who was charged with felony distribution of child pornography for sending a picture of herself to a boy at her school. Okay, and so if she had been convicted, this would have basically ruined her life. So she has to register as a sex offender for the rest of her life. You know, maybe, maybe can't get a job, has a hard time finding places to live, whatever, like, okay. You know, fortunately, the judge dismissed that case. But when the prosecutor filed those charges, they literally satisfied the text of the law. Like the text of the law didn't give an exception for if the person in the photographs is you. <laughs> because they just, the legislature just didn't think of that. They didn't think of the possibility that somebody would be charged for sending pictures of themselves. So they didn't put that in the law. So by the letter of the law, she she committed distribution of child pornography. You know, if a person uses like normal moral judgment and they hear the facts of that case, they are going to say not guilty, right? And that's that's one of the reasons why we need jury trial, right? It adds to a system of checks and balances, but both within, you know, it strengthens the checking system of the judiciary to check the legislature and the executive. But it's also a way that internally to the judicial branch itself is a check on the, you know, how the judicial branch acts. It's not all just run by professional state appointed judges. That's right. Yeah. If, if it's, you know, if it's working as advertised. Yeah. And, you know, like think about, you know, think about everything else about our government. Like this is in this is in line with everything else that the founders were doing. They were constantly trying to put in, you know, all sorts of different checks. Like they were constantly worried that the government was going to become tyrannical. And so there's all of these different provisions and the jury trial is just uh, another one of them, right? Which, you know, judges have managed to mostly um, circumvent, right? Judges, it's the judges who are circumventing our system. Because when you go in there for a jury trial, the judge is going to basically tell you that you can't do jury nullification. And by the way, that's a lie. He knows that you can. But if you ask about it, he will say, no, you can't. And there are court cases about whether it's okay for the judge to do that. And the courts generally say, yes, the judge is allowed to lie. (laughs) So he is allowed to say, you can't do jury nullification, even though he knows you can. Right? And also, by the way, they're allowed to exclude you from the jury for knowing about jury nullification. Right? <laughs> even though this is something that you can do, if you know that you can do it, they can kick you off the jury. Or if you tell them. <laughs> so if you go in, if you go up for jury service, um, don't mention jury nullification, unless you want to get kicked off the jury. Right? If you I've, actually I've considered- don't want to serve, then you can mention jury nullification. I know that, and I've considered that. I think I would like to serve on a jury, but if I really didn't want to, and I got that far in the process, I might mention it. Bring, bring a, you know, I've got a couple of books on it. Bring, bring them in with me. Start, start distributing pamphlets, <laughs> right? Like, was it called Fully Informed Jury Association? They go around yes. distributing pamphlets about nullification. Mm-hmm. They just can't do it within a certain amount of feet of a courthouse or something like that. I don't yeah. know what the rules are, but I looked into doing that at one point and it it seemed sufficiently likely that I would get arrested that I didn't want to try. Tell me about, you mentioned the distinction in one of your reform proposals between uh, an adversarial and inquisitorial trial system. 
And it made me realize how much you can have blinders on and not even think of what other possibilities there are for a trial system because I know the term and I know that, that not, you know, every country has an adversarial court system, but what's the difference between adversarial and inquisitorial and what are some of the, you know, upsides and downsides of each system? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like Americans, um, kind of only know the adversarial system and then tend to just assume that that's the best system that humanity has discovered. Uh, and so, you know, it's a system in which, well, there are two advocates whose each of them, their job is to represent one side of the case. And then, you know, so supposedly from the clash of these two expert people presenting opposite sides, the truth will emerge, right? So, you know, uh, like in the criminal trial, just the prosecutor just presents the case against the defendant, and then you have a defense attorney who's supposed to um, present the case for the defendant. The inquisitorial system, um, it's understood that everybody is just trying to find the truth. Right? And so um, so you can have a lawyer, but he's not supposed to try to mislead the court. Right. And so like, you know, and they're, they're sort of like, and I'm, you know, a lot less familiar with this because I'm an American. Right. But anyway, like people who are familiar with both both systems, uh, my impression is that they tend to think the inquisitorial system is more reliable. You know, like they asked some lawyer who was familiar with both systems, which would you rather be tried under? And he said, if I was guilty, I would prefer the adversarial system. (laughs) If I was innocent, I would prefer the inquisitorial system. (laughs) It's said, like it's said by Americans that the best way of finding the truth is to have these two people who are both presenting, you know, opposite sides. Why on earth would you think that that's the best way of finding the truth? To have two people who are neither of whom is pursuing the truth. Why would that be more likely to get to the truth? And like, you know, what, so one of them is just like trying to mislead, you know, in one direction and the other lawyer is trying to mislead the court in the other direction. <laughs> well, it's not necessarily misleading, right? But they're just, try- they're, they're indifferent to whether it's true or not, right? And it's perfectly possible that they could both be pursuing a theory of what happened in the case that is not true but that yeah. they think is most likely to That's you know right, counter yeah. counter the other side. Yeah, by the way, I should say before, you know, somebody gets mad and um you know tries to correct me that the prosecutor is not supposed to be prosecuting people who are innocent. <laughs> like in theory, prosecutors are not trying to convict anyone unless the prosecutor himself thinks that they're actually guilty. In theory, the prosecutor is trying to achieve the just outcome, but in practice, prosecutors are trying to win. You know, in practice, they actually care about their win-loss record, right? And they're insanely biased against defendants, right? As, by the way, defense attorneys are insanely biased in favor of defendants. Sure. Anyway, so, uh, but in, uh, in like lawsuits, you know, neither side cares about justice. They're just trying to get whatever serves their client. So, you know, the, like the plaintiff's attorney is just trying to get as much money as possible for their client. Um, whether or not it's just right, and like, and then the defendant's lawyer is just trying to like get as little money paid out, even if he knows that the defendant committed a tort, right? Um, and so, like, why would you think that that's going to result in the just outcome, right? There's like obvious reasons why um, you can get unjust outcomes, right? Like, what if one lawyer is more skillful than the other? You know, like, don't be a fool. Like, of course, that affects the outcome. You know, there are lots of techniques that you can do to try to influence the jury that are not just like giving rational arguments and presenting the objective evidence, right? A really catchy rhyme. 
<laughs> I guess you could try that. Yeah, like if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Exactly. <laughs> right. Way to try to influence them. Uh, trying to exclude people from the jury who, you know, during the jury selection process who you think would not be sympathetic. Um, prosecutors try to exclude intelligent people from the jury. Like I would probably get excluded for being a professor. Right. And also for having written about philosophy of law, like I have a book about philosophy of law. Now I know too much. So like a prosecutor would probably try to get me kicked off. First, he would try to come up with some reason why I was not good. He would try to come up with a rationalization. And if he couldn't, he'd probably use a peremptory challenge, right? which is where you get to kick somebody off the jury for no reason without having to state your reason. OK, and they would do that. So they would do that because um, intelligent people tend to scrutinize the prosecution's case more carefully. They don't want that. Okay, but so like that's an example of how like the skill of the lawyer trying to win that goes against the goal of the system of trying to be reliable at getting the truth. In private arbitration, do that does it more adversarial or more inquisitorial? I think with arbitration you can still have a lawyer, is that right? Or maybe some arbitrators allow lawyers and some don't. So like I don't if you have a lawyer, know. then your lawyer would still be advocating for your your interest, whatever it is. My assumption is that there's probably diversity in that because it's just a matter of the arbitration agency determining what they what they think and what they think their customers will think is a reliable dispute resolution procedure, which yeah, yeah. might have features of both. I don't know. They don't use juries hardly ever or ever. I'm, I, That's I, right. Yeah, you, yeah, you wouldn't, wouldn't use a jury. That defeats the point. Yeah, I mean, arbitration is um, cheaper and faster, right? You know, cheaper for society and... Yeah, no, I think it is cheaper, I think, maybe because you don't have to have a lawyer. Now I need to look into whether you need a lawyer for an arbitrator, but anyway. <laughs> um, but faster and you know, probably about equally reliable. Right. And like the arbitrator, so the arbitrator makes a decision that he thinks is fair. This is like so the arbitrator is just like a private person, um, not you know, not a judge, not a government employee, but he makes a decision that um he regards as fair. And then and both parties have agreed to accept the arbitrator's decision in advance, which means that the wider the government court system will also recognize it. Because even if the even if the government courts think that the arbitrator made the wrong decision for that case, uh, it will still be that you're obligated to follow it because of your contractual arrangement with the arbitrator. Mm -hmm. Because you've contracted to follow his decision. Right. Even if it would have been a different decision in the government court. Right. Um, that's a good way of circumventing some of the like insane expenses and delays of the government court system. Does this book require does it presuppose a controversial political philosophy, libertarian or anarchist? Or if it doesn't presuppose it, does it require that, you know, you persuade someone of those of those perspectives before they take on the conclusions of this book? Uh, I, I don't think so. You're like, like, what am I assuming? Like, oh, well, I think people have rights, but I, you know, I sort of like explain my reason for thinking that people have rights. And, um, and my reason isn't libertarian specific, right? Like I cite intuitions that are widely shared by almost everyone. So when I give that example, like, um, you know, is it okay to um, frame the innocent person for the crime in order to prevent riots, which are going to cause more harm? Almost everyone says it's not okay. And that's irrespective of their political orientation. It's not like, you know, only libertarians think you can't do that. <laughs> like everyone agrees you can't do that. Okay. So like that supports the general view about rights. Right. Um, and so, you know, I mean, it's like that, right. Um, the things I say are unjust. I'm saying they're unjust based on pretty uncontroversial 
reasons. So like people will disagree with my conclusion, but the premises I'm starting from are not that controversial. Okay, so like I gave that example about Starvin Marvin, um, about the immigration laws, about why the immigration laws are unjust. Yeah. Well, it's not, you know, the like the premise is um, it's wrong for Sam to stop Marvin from getting to the marketplace or something like that. It's wrong, it's a violation of his rights or something like that. That's not like a libertarian specific premise, right? Like almost everyone who hears that story agrees that it would be wrong to do that. The only reason you might not agree is that you see that it's going to be used as a metaphor for immigration mm-hmm. restrictions. But if you weren't thinking about that, if you weren't thinking about the policy implications, you just thought about that as a case about a particular person, conservatives, liberals, progressives, whatever, you know, socialists, fascists, libertarians, maybe not fascists, I don't know. But, you know, almost <laughs> everyone would agree that it, it was wrong, right? So that's how it generally is. Like I start from premises I think are pretty widely shared. And then I get to conclusions that are, um, you know, I guess not widely shared, right? I guess radical. So the problem would be, the problem is that someone would have to take issue, probably not with the premises, but with some some part of the analogy or some, you know, the the, the part where you make, make the leap from the hypothetical or the, the intuition to a broader policy conclusion. You know, how would somebody dispute my conclusions? I'm not sure. I think in most cases, people just haven't really thought through everything. And like, there are just tensions in their beliefs that they haven't resolved. So like, um, the anti-immigration people, I think they have, they're just applying double standards. Like they're applying different moral standards when they think about immigration policy than they would apply in individual interpersonal interactions. I think they just don't really have a coherent belief system. But, you know, like if I presented, I think they would come up with something. They would say something. Um, they would try to say that, like, in, in this particular case, in the starving Marvin case, they would try to say that that's not a good analogy for immigration restrictions. And then they would try to come up with reasons why it was disanalogous. Like, you know, maybe uh, they would start saying, uh, oh, well, maybe the immigrants are going to destroy America. And then there'd be some like hyperbolic thing about mm-hmm. how they're going to destroy democracy because they came from a non-democratic country or something like that, which I agree would make it disanalogous, right? Yeah, I think trying to think of, you know, re- real people and real arguments and yeah, they might come up with a variety of sufficiently weighty consequentialist considerations where you might be justified in overriding that. Some of it might be just like kind of an unstated Burkean conservatism uh, and wanting to be just being very reticent to embrace any kind of sufficiently radical change. Yeah, you might think, oh, my God, you know, what are going to be the consequences if we let in millions more people than we already are? But, you know, FYI, we used to have more liberal immigration policies. Yes, we did. You know, in the last century or whatever. So... And we might again, the the Latino public opinion polls are showing that there's an increasing rightward turn of, you know, Latino and Hispanic public opinion. And I'm wondering if that's going to make Republicans more friendly to immigration or just make Democrats less friendly to it. And being yeah. cynical, I'm I'm afraid it'll be the latter, but I hope yeah, it's I mean, the I'm former. wondering if they're, if they're going to switch sides, right? Occasionally, occasionally in like, um, you know, political ideology history, the uh, left and right wing positions on something switch. If like for for a while, the right wing position on foreign policy was non-interventionist. 
the left wing position was more interventionist. It was like the Democrats who did the wars in the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. And then uh, and then they flipped maybe around the time of Carter and Reagan, I think, or the conservatives became the hawks. Maybe towards the end of Vietnam, when when uh, Nixon's presidency was, you know, maybe getting more associated with Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Right. Um, but yeah, so then, you know, after 9-11, I think the Democrats um, decided to become hawks because they knew that, you know, being doves was going to be a, a losing, <laughs> politically losing. And then I think for a while we had two hawkish parties, like there was a bipartisan agreement on interventionist foreign policy and military intervention. I think bipartisan hawkishness has been a pretty long-standing feature, yeah. at least for at least for a, a, a large a large chunk of the parties. I mean, it's sort of um, switching back after Trump, because you know, like Trump was saying that he didn't want to intervene, um, and you know that that's part, possibly partly because he's lazy, and <laughs> and you know, like running a war is a lot of work. <laughs> so <laughs> he wouldn't want to do that. Uh, anyway, that's a that's a cynical take on that. But anyway, so then, oh, now the Democrats are like, oh, yeah, we need more war. Right. And it used to be that the, you know, because I'm an old person, I remember when the Republicans were um, the anti-Russia party. Yeah, they were hard, hard line, you know, anti-Russian, whatever, anti-communist, anti-Soviet Union. Pro CIA, pro FBI, pro NATO. Yeah. If you ask if you ask one of these people from the Reagan era, hey, you know, what do you think about this? Um KGB colonel who's now the dictator of Russia. I think they would be unfriendly. <laughs> anyway, anyway, okay. It was all a digression from talking about immigration. Like, yeah, I wonder if there's going to be a, a flip of the party's positions. Um, or you know, maybe there will be a, a nice time in between when both parties will be like, maybe they'll be moving, you know, both towards the center and maybe they'll agree for a while, and then maybe they will liberalize the laws a little bit. That would be cool. Last question about this book. Can you say something about how you think this book, the thesis of it, fits in or complements um, your other book, The Problem of Political Authority? You know, it's closely related because I'm sort of, you know, in this book, I'm talking about how you have to put justice ahead of the law, but I'm not presupposing that there's no authority, I don't think. Right. But, you know, I but didn't if think you believe, so. Yeah. If you reject the idea of political authority, though, then it becomes a lot easier to see. <laughs> Right. Because then it's like, well, fidelity to the law maybe isn't important at all. Right. Maybe that has no value. So then, of course, justice comes before the law. But I'm not assuming that. Right. And my initial thought was, yeah, let me sort of like extend my thinking to legal philosophy. Like I have this sort of like anti-authoritarian streak. I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to apply that to legal philosophy. Right. But I'm I'm trying to not assume really controversial things to start with. Right. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the arguments, I guess, are kind of the same, you know, arguments for why it's important to um, just follow the law. Um, people will say things like, um, well, you know, like we need to have predictability in our system. And, uh, you know, there's going to be chaos and society will collapse if we don't have people deferring to the law. And that's a lot of what people say in political philosophy about why we need a state in the first place. Right. Like, you know, we need order and predictability or whatever. And there's going to be chaos if people are just exercising their own conscience and stuff like that. There's a certain amount of order and stability to people's consciences, especially over large numbers of people. Yeah. I mean, the best answer to this is, you know, there's a thing called spontaneous order. So actually, you can get order from the operations of the market. Uh, and often it's better than the order that you get from the government. Right? 
Yeah, so. and or or the operation of like widespread jury nullification. If this yeah. is just kind of like institutionalizing the idea that you know the <laughs> the average uh, moral sensibilities of normal people on very specific case specific issues are going to take precedence in some way. And it's not like they can arrest people. They can only fail to punish people. I mean, that's an important point, right? Like the people who talk about rule of law, well, they often forget to distinguish between two principles that you might call rule of law, right? One is that, well, you shouldn't be punished if you didn't violate a written law. And then they're kind of confusing that with, you have to be punished if you did violate a written law. I, I understand why the first one is important. Like you can't plan your day if you don't know if you're just going to be arrested for anything. Right? If you don't have to have violated a law to be arrested, then I can be arrested anytime. So like it's hard to plan my day. Okay. But on the other hand, if you're not sure whether you'd be convicted if you violated a law, that doesn't stop you from planning, right? Like, you know, if I use illegal drugs, I'm not sure if I'm going to go to jail. I might go to jail, but also I might get off because of jury nullification. Mm -hmm. Okay. But also I might never be arrested at all because, you know, most crimes are, they never do anything about it, right? Cops don't catch most criminals. Okay. So that doesn't stop me from planning my day. Uh, I, I agree with the first part of the rule of law, right? No punishing <laughs> people who didn't violate the law. You know, and but, even, but also even with... the other thing I want to say is like, and, and which I think you were sort of touching on is, um, no, what's, you know, what is disorderly about this jury nullification system? This is the system. Like when people, when the jury votes to acquit, even though the guy violated the law, they're not violating their duty. They're not violating their role. They're doing their job. That is the role of the jury as it was intended by the founders of the U.S. Constitution. So like, why can't that be the system? What's wrong with having that be the system? Like where you get punished you know, only if 12 ordinary people think that you deserve to be punished, right? And, you know, they have to go through this process. They have to listen to all the evidence in the trial and listen to the arguments from both lawyers, you know, and then they decide whether you did something that deserves to be punished. So that's a, that's a social system. Like that's an yeah. orderly way of deciding what gets done to alleged criminals. It's a system where there's a high bar for being officially punished by the state. And the high bar involves, you know, several stages. You have to you know, an arresting officer has to believe that you did something wrong and a prosecutor has to believe that you did something wrong enough to bring a case. And on top yeah. of all that, the jury has to believe that you actually did the thing that they said you did and that it was wrong or deserving of punishment. And, you know, like the third one is the high bar. The first two are not because <laughs> it's very easy to convince cops that you did something wrong. They well, it's a high bar based on, you know, what, what you were just saying, whether or not they believe it is one thing, but whether or not there's someone there to arrest you. Um, most, mm. most criminal acts don't get arrested slight detour, but you know, you talk about, you talk about something, you know, the severity of punishment as a deterrent is not all that important. It's not that it's unimportant, but it's not nearly as important as the certainty, you know, the probability with which you will be caught. So, you know, a system that had much lighter punishments, but a much higher chance of just being caught and sternly scolded or put into a police car for a couple hours or something like that. Not that that's like would be the, the most just outcome, but that would serve a better deterrent effect. Yeah, that's what social scientists say that, um, you know, like the criminals are not um, perfectly good expected utility maximizers. Mm -hmm. They neglect low probabilities, even if there's a high 
harm. Right? They they neglect a low probability of being caught, even if there's a really high punishment. So they tend to dis- discount that. They pay more attention to like just the probability of being caught. High quality private security whose main role is just to, you know, maybe rudely throw people out of a store is probably a good version of that. You've got a high yeah. chance of being caught. The punishment is very little. Uh, maybe you get embarrassed and thrown out. But if you, yeah, you're yeah. pretty sure that the store's cameras or the dude walking around is is going to be a jerk to you and throw you out of the store, then that might do it, do the trick. You might think, oh, well, here's the strategy. And this is what you do if you're a psychopath. You just like go to store after store and just keep trying to steal something until you succeed. <laughs> it's like you do it 50 times, they catch you 49 times, but then one time you get like or whatever, some something of value. <laughs> um, but a normal person would not do that. A psychopath might do that, but a normal person would not do that because it would be unpleasant every time and embarrassing every time they get caught. And a lot of work. What kind of projects are you working on right now? Well, you know, so I've just written like a, an introduction to epistemology that I'm going to self-publish like like I did with my introduction to philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned that last time we were on. Is it How close is it to self-publishing? I finished the manuscript and I have um, a couple of people who are reading it to, to see if they can find errors and things. Um, you know, it'll hopefully be out um, later this year. Cool. Well, I will look for that for sure. And where can people find you if they want to keep up keep up with uh, what so, you're doing? You know, I have a blog on Substack called Fake News, fakenews.substack.net. How long ago um, did you move Fake News to Substack? I don't know. I think it was, I don't know, a couple months ago, a few months ago. How have you and, been liking um, that transition? Uh, it's good. I've gotten like um, a lot more subscribers. And I get a lot more views you know, for my posts. So I get like, you know, it used to be that a good post was a thousand views and now I get 2000 views for a lame post or whatever. I get 2000 <laughs> views for just There's no lame post. average posts. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, so it like, it's like you get a lot more attention. Yeah, so, you know, check out my blog. Uh, fake news is F-A-K-E-N-O-U-S because it's the Greek word noose, not the English word news. <laughs> because noose is the Greek word for mind. Don't worry, that'll be on the show notes. And I have a website, owl232.net. I will make sure that that and your website and fake news is all linked to. I'll link to your author page on Google as well. And I will keep an eye out for your upcoming book. The book we talked about today is Justice Before the Law. We just kind of touched on a handful of topics in there. So go get it. Go buy it on Amazon. It's it's really good. It's really well-written. And Mike Humer is a super smart and insightful guy. Read everything he's written. I have maybe like, how many books have you written? Like eight? Eight, yeah. Okay, I think I've read half of your books. I'll, I'll get there. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Everyone appreciates it. You're my second returning guest. You and Brian Kaplan have both been on twice. And I know you have crossovers in your audience. So I hope to have you both back again. All right, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Of, of course, take care. That was Mike Humer, and his book, once again, is Justice Before the Law. You can find that book and other topics discussed on today's episode in the show notes. If you've been listening to Ideas Having Sex and enjoying it, I implore you to please subscribe to, rate, and review the show. It's a small thing, but I do read and appreciate every single review I get, and I love you all for writing them. Until next time, I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening. 